Well, good morning. Happy New Year. As we uh, begin a brand new year together this morning, I selected a passage of scripture that is one of my go-to passages in times when I'm feeling discouraged, which is often. The topic of this text is do not lose heart. The passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Would you open your Bibles with me there and let's read God's good word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father in heaven, as we've already prayed and sung, we pray that your word would be clearly explained and more than just understood by us, it would be loved and cherished. We would be cut to the heart and helped. And we pray that you would be worshiped as we do. And we pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, you may be aware of this already, but the whole theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians is perseverance in the midst of suffering. Paul explains through this book more about the particular sufferings and difficulties he faced than he does anywhere else in the whole Bible. Paul's life was full of hardship, trials, and great suffering. Let's see a sampling of it from this book. If you turn over to chapter 1, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercy, who comforts us in all our afflictions. He's just a few verses in, and he's already addressing all of his afflictions. He uses the word affliction again in verse 4. He uses sufferings in verse 5, sufferings which are his in Christ Jesus in abundance. Verse 6, we patiently endure suffering. Verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we faced in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So we're nine verses into 2 Corinthians, and Paul has already mentioned his sufferings, his afflictions, being utterly burdened beyond his strength and feeling as though he had the sentence of death written over his whole life. Humanly speaking, governmental authorities dealing with Paul seemed to have the upper hand. They were seemingly going to win, and in such despair, Paul writes in verses 9 and 10, all this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, he delivered us from such deadly peril. On him we have set our hope. This confident trust that Paul had that God was going to deliver him didn't see, it, seemingly it wasn't that he trusted that God was going to deliver his own life from trouble, but he trusted that God was going to raise him from the dead when the authorities took his life. In chapter 2, two Paul lists another kind of sorrow. He said, essentially, you Corinthians give me sorrow. Look at verses uh, 2 through 4 of chapter 2. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction in anguish of heart, and with many tears. In other words, Paul's saying, you Corinthians are a pain to me, and I in turn am a pain to you, and the whole thing is a very sad experience. I don't like the way you treat me. You don't like the way I treat you. And he wrote to them out of much affliction, and anguish of heart, and many tears. Sounds like real life, doesn't it? He actually went to Corinth after having left Corinth, and when he returned, someone in the congregation stood up and condemned him to his face publicly, and he slid out of town heartbroken as no one in that congregation stood to his defense. Can you imagine the heartbreak of that? It's one thing to be condemned by unbelievers. It's a whole other thing to be condemned by those that you regard and that actually are brothers and sisters to you. In Christ, that's a different pain altogether. Back to 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, 
In verse 8, just to remind you, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. In other words, the reality is we carry around this concept, this notion, this idea that at any moment we might be delivered over to death. Verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal bodies. Verse 12, death works in us. That's how Paul lived his entire life. Chapter 6, look at verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness at the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and through praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Chapter, that's, that's just how Paul lived his entire life. Chapter 10 Paul talks about the way he was treated in verse 10. His contemporary said of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his speech is of no account. You know what that means, essentially. He's ugly and he can't talk. If you're attractive, people will listen to you because at least you're something to look at as you're speaking. If you're eloquent, people were looking at, will, will listen to you because you've got content to what you're saying. But they're saying, Paul, you've got neither. You're not nice to look at and you're not eloquent of speech. It's an ad hominem attack on his whole life and character. Chapter 11, contrasting his ministry with the super apostles, he writes, starting in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst and without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So not losing heart in the midst of suffering, it's a major theme of this entire book. Paul was a man who suffered a great deal because of the gospel. But the specific suffering that I believe Paul has in mind back in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians is one that I think we can all relate to, to some degree, 
It's the suffering of giving good and faithful gospel efforts and seeing very little tangible fruit from those efforts. It's proclaiming Christ to the best of your ability with your whole life, your money, your words, your conduct, your attitude, your time, your energy, your talents, your gifts, your sacrifices, your service, and despite such all-in investment, those to whom you strive to minister the gospel with all of your might are not embracing the gospel that you proclaim. What happens when you go hard for a decade or two decades or five decades and it has not produced the desired results of transforming the lives of others? What happens when you do that with a close friend or a family member or one of your own children? And all that you've done in decades of life and ministry, all that you've done to try and hold out the power of Christ and the beauty of Jesus, instead of embracing that, what you get instead is mistreatment, anger, hostility, misunderstanding, and not just from outsiders who are antagonistic towards the gospel, but by brothers and sisters, those who no longer want to shake your hand when they see you on Sunday mornings. In fact, they don't even want to talk to you. They don't want to be in the same room with you. They don't want to live life with you in any significant way. They'd rather avoid you. Perhaps even like Paul, questions of the legitimacy of your salvation arise in their mind when you walk in the room or when you stand behind a pulpit. Instead of warmth and tenderness and love and appreciation, there's disrespect and disregard and avoidance and rejected rejection and hatred and mistreatment, and not just from unbelievers, but also from brothers and sisters among whom you've sought to impart the gospel the best you can in all of its beauty. The temptation in such times, brothers and sisters, is to lose heart. It's hugely tempting to lose heart. Although the ministry that we've been saved into and called to proclaim is exceedingly glorious, when others reject the message, and not only reject the message, but grow hatred towards the messenger of the message, there is a temptation from there to lose heart. And when you lose heart, sins of various, kind, uh, various kinds become hugely attractive. I believe that is the kind of not losing heart that Paul had in mind in this chapter because those first six verses, they all expose this temptation to lighten up on proclaiming the glory of the gospel in the midst of ongoing human opposition. Paul felt that temptation. If you stop to ask the reason, Paul, why are you willing to suffer so much in your life? Why did you enter town to town and it was never your question, I wonder what the nice hotels are like in that town. I wonder if there's a hotel that offers a continental breakfast. His question rather was, I wonder what the jail is like in that town because that's where I'm going to be after a couple of days of staying there. What's the jail like? Paul, why did you enter those towns knowing that persecution and beating and stoning and flogging and imprisonment awaited you. Why did you do it? His reason, it's tucked away in verse four. Look at it. 
It was because the glory of the gospel. There is nothing else like it. Comparatively, nothing holds a candle to the glory of the gospel. The gospel in all of its beauty is why Paul was willing to suffer the various ways that he suffered. The gospel is worth suffering for, and the gospel is what sustained Paul and will sustain us in the midst of the suffering that it brings. When Paul came to the end of his life, the very end of his life, this is how he went out. Second Timothy 4 says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have what? Fought. I've fought the good fight from beginning to end. Paul's life as a Christian was a fight. It was a battle from start to finish. You know how it ended for Paul? He placed his head on a board and an ax flashed in the, in the sun that severed his head from his body. Prior to that, multiple beatings, floggings, stonings, lashings, hunger, danger, plots to destroy him, both from enemies outside the church and enemies inside the church. No doubt Paul had friends. He had to have had friends that came to him and said, come on, Paul, lighten up. Do you really have to be so abrasive? You can tamper things down and stop getting yourself run out of every single town you enter. Do you have to live your life upsetting so many people and causing them to form plots and schemes and wickedness against you? Plots from the Jews, plots from the Gentiles, plots from governmental leaders, plots from business leaders, plots from those within the church and outside the church. It really doesn't have to be that way. You can make some adjustments. Well, how did he endure all of this and not lose heart? The answer is that he understood the glory of the gospel. He understood how very glorious this gospel message is. This whole chapter, it is bracketed by that theme, don't lose heart. Verse 1 says, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, coming to the end of the chapter, therefore, we do not lose heart. Paul's main burden in this section is to appeal to believers to not lose heart in the midst of suffering because of the glory of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, I will say to not lose heart is not the best translation of what's being said here. It's a verb in the Greek, ekkakeko. It means to do evil, to do evil. And Paul is saying, I have had plenty of temptation in my life to do evil, to act badly by deviating from the truth of the gospel in order to make my life easier, and I don't do that. That's functionally what it is to lose heart. It is to stop fighting against the pull of your flesh to act wrongly, to do wrongly. That's what it is to lose heart. It is to stop fighting against sin and to give yourself over to doing wrongly. And excessive suffering, not just one-off, but excessive suffering can and does tempt even the strongest of Christians this way. 
Why resist any longer? Why not just give over to what my flesh wants? Why not relieve the suffering with a little bit of momentary pleasure? Why resist? Why not repay with the same treatment that I'm being treated with? Why not give them what they're giving me? The answer is because the, the gospel is too good of a message. It's too true. It's too powerful. It's too beautiful. It's too commendable to not endure and press on to lose heart over it. Well, from this text, I want to show us six things. I originally had 15, but you're welcome. It's a new year, you know. Six things, that's it. Six things I want to show you from this text to keep in mind if we're not to lose heart. Six ways of thinking that will prevent you from losing heart in a new year. You ready? Number one, understand the absolute glory of the new covenant. You want to not lose heart? Understand the glory of the new covenant. I get this from the context of the passage. 2 Corinthians 4 begins with these words, therefore, <laughs> having this ministry by the mercy of God. Every time you read the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, what's it there for your good Bible students? Good job. And the answer is the context of what Paul has just been describing in chapter 3, which is the glory of the new covenant. This new covenant, it was so long awaited for. 3.7. The Israelites could not even gaze at the face of Moses when the old covenant was given because the old covenant came with great glory. Verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If the ministry of condemnation came with glory, and it did, then how much more glory does the ministry of that which gives freedom and life and salvation have even more glory? The law had glory because it was a direct reflection of God. It gave clarity to how to live one's life purely towards God and towards others in this world, and it gave consequence for disobedience. There was a beauty to the law, verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Remember, Paul himself, prior to his conversion, he gave his life for the law. He was willing to die for the law. As to righteousness, he was blameless. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was bound up in keeping the law. He was kosher to the core, if you will. But now... He considers that which had glory and held his life and drove his whole life to be rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of that which has been brought about through Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3. The new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of that which gives life has abounding glory. Now, how important do you think it was to Paul when he discovered the new covenant? <laughs> Talk about breakthroughs. I mean, talk about relief. Talk about freedom and love never experienced before from God that had never been achieved by Paul through all of his fastidious keeping of the law. 
The new covenant realities for Paul held tremendous glory. The message of the gospel was very good news to Paul. It was incredible deliverance for a hopeless legalist. When his eyes were opened to see the glory of what Christ had accomplished on the cross for him, he was never the same again. Changed his entire life. He was completely changed. It was good news through and through. You want to not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, understand the glory of this covenant that we are under. It is Wonderful good news. Never stop marveling at it. Never stop rejoicing in it. New covenant realities remain true even in the midst of great suffering. Point one, you want to not lose heart? Understand the glory of this covenant that we're under. Number two, Paul embraced ministry as a mercy. Verse one, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. Ministry is mercy. Perhaps some of us think that somehow we've earned the right to proclaim the gospel. We've been a Christian for X number of years. We're mature in the faith. We've studied the Bible at seminary. That'll do it, right? We've managed our households well. We've been faithful in tithing. We've shared the gospel evangelistically. We've not living in any patterns of sinful rebellion. We've earned the right to be ministers of the gospel. Well, listen, whether you are a minister of the gospel serving vocationally as a pastor or missionary, or your ministry is leading a gospel community group, or your ministry is teaching in IK, or proclaiming right Christ at your workplace as a faithful Christian, or teaching your children the gospel as a faithful mom or dad, or your ministry is just being a faithful friend to others and telling them Jesus is real and powerful, every Christian, everyone, is a minister of the gospel. That's Ephesians 4. We're freed up in Christ to speak the truth and love to one another, which is ministry. And whatever ministry we have, no matter how large or no matter how small, it is mercy. It's mercy. None of us are worthy in and of ourselves to proclaim this gospel. It's a mercy that we're brought into faith to begin with and then filled with his spirit and enabled to proclaim him to another person. And every opportunity you have to describe the glory of this new covenant and all that has been accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ to any other person, one-on-one or from a pulpit, it is mercy It is not the result of you getting a degree. It's not the result of you being a Christian for a long time. It's not a result of you maturing in your faith. It's not the result of any gift that you've got. It is mercy. The fact that you and I can explain that Jesus died in the place of sinful rebels and he loves them to the point of shedding his own blood for them to pay for our sin debt. It's mercy that enables you and I to proclaim the message. And the privilege of this, it's staggering. It's staggering. It's an overwhelming privilege to get to speak to another person about how great Jesus is, regardless of their response. It's a privilege to speak about him. Here's the good news. It was not your strength that earned you this right. And it isn't your weakness that will forfeit this right. It's mercy. It's mercy. 
We don't deserve it. Despite your weaknesses and failures and sins, God has shown you mercy and that mercy gives you, you, the real you, a real ministry. And when you understand that ministry is a mercy in any capacity, it takes away a lot of pressure and duty and obligation. Rather, it's, it's just, this is a mercy that I get to speak to you this way. And it'll free you up to not have too high of expectations of how other people will respond to that ministry. Sadly, I experience this myself and I hear it all the time around saints at Emmanuel, that we are burnt out, that we're feeling tired, that we're discouraged, that we're losing heart. Burnout in ministry is not the result of hard work. It's not because you're working hard that you're burnt out. There's other professions that work hard. I don't ever hear plumbers say, I'm burnt out. I've never heard it. I've never heard a carpenter say, I'm burnt out. I've never heard ditch diggers say, I'm burnt out from the work. It's just so much. They might be tired, but they're not burnt out. Burnout in ministry happens when we don't get our expectations met. That's when you get burnt out. I deserve better than this. You shouldn't be treating me this way. I don't have to put up with this. I shouldn't be scorned for speaking the truth to you. I expected you to respond this way, but because you're responding this way, man, I'm tired and weary, losing heart. We come into ministry, large and small, whatever capacity, we come into ministry with expectations of how people are going to respond to that ministry. And the truth is, people don't always respond the way that you wish they would. What if God treated us according to what we deserve? We're to treat others the way God treats us, which is always unfair. It's always uneven. If God gave us what we deserved, we would be under wrath forever, forever. He treats us according to mercy and the ministry he calls us into is a ministry by the mercy of God to speak of the mercy of God, even if and when other people aren't responding to it the way that you wish. Number three, understand the necessity of a pure heart. While this ministry we have is a mercy, it doesn't give room for living in patterned rebellion. Look at what Paul says in verse two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Our methods of proclaiming the glory of Christ are meant to be consistent with the message itself. Remember the context of this whole letter Paul is exampling for us and calling us to be faithful to God in the midst of suffering, particularly the suffering brought about when we minister the gospel of Jesus to others and they reject it and they reject us as part of rejecting it. What happens when that happens is a huge temptation to lose heart. And when you lose heart, sin, act badly, act wrongly. This happens in church after church after church across America and around the world as leaders recognize, you know what? The gospel is not bearing the kind of fruit that we desire, that we think it ought to be producing. We're not seeing people respond to the message of Jesus the way we we want them to. Therefore, we have to overcome consumer resistance to our product, the gospel. They begin to alter the message. 
temptations to soften sin, to lighten the mood, to add a little smoke and lights to music, to dumb down the message, to make it more palatable, or temptations to so overemphasize law, duty, obligation, failure, with little mention at all about the grace of Jesus. We can forfeit the gospel, leave the gospel in a variety of different ways. We're very creative at this. So many of these methods flow from discouragement that our open proclamation of the truth isn't bearing the kind of fruits that we expect. We do it in parenting. We're not seeing our children respond to our good instructions after years, maybe decades. Little response that we think, well, the gospel message isn't working. Therefore, anger. We still might be saying many of the same things that we were saying, but not at all displaying the kind of kindness and mercy and grace of Jesus in the midst of saying it. It's all an underhanded, disgraceful, manipulative attempt to bring about better results because the gospel isn't working. And those ulterior methods, if you will, they might bring about momentary results that seem better than sweetness and kindness, And Jesus is really a great savior, said in a way that displays him. It might change the attitude immediately, but it does not produce lasting change ever. We do it in marriage. Our spouse isn't coming around to treat us the way we think we deserve, and we begin to withhold warmth and tenderness, and we feel quite justified in doing it. They aren't treating me the way... I want, and my sweetness has not worked to produce the change in them that I want to see. Therefore, we must be doing something wrong. This must be something wrong with being sweet. I'll get bitter and angry and cold and distant and withhold all tenderness. It's because we have lost heart. Singles, you're not exempt. Those of you who desire a spouse, you've tried your entire adult life to honor the Lord with purity and wait patiently on the Lord for his gift of a spouse. After years and years, it gets tiring. You think this isn't working. It's not working. My unmet expectations, it's always very fertile soil for your flesh to sow seeds of sin into. And it all comes because we've lost Heart. Paul says, even in the midst of a lack of fruit, even when we get the opposite of what we desire, those we're ministering to hate us. In response to our gospel proclamation, these realities ought never to produce within us sinful responses. Our methods of presenting the gospel must always be consistent with the gospel message itself. In Paul's words, we renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning which is just manipulative attempts to bring about better responses. Number four, next thing to keep in mind if you're to avoid losing heart and living out the gospel in this life, proclaiming it with all of your life, then know this, the results depend on God. I need to hear this, you need to hear this, and we all need to be freed up by this truth. We are not in charge of results. Say it with me. We are not in charge of results. We cannot produce results, not large ones and not small ones, 
We can do nothing in another person to bring about the desired outcome of our gospel ministry. You can't produce gospel fruit in another person's life, no matter how winsome you are, no matter how faithful you are, no matter how obedient you are, or how awesome your methods are. You, like Paul, can say all the right things in all the right ways. And the truth of the matter is that because of original sin, there will always be plenty of rejection to our message. I'm sure this was part of the accusation against Paul at this point in his ministry. People looked at him and would say, look, you're going around from town to town, and my goodness, look at the amount of trouble you're facing. People want you dead. People either throw you in jail or they beat you. You're really not having a whole lot of gospel success, Paul. What's his answer? Verse 3. If our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. That's a category of people, and it is the default position of the entire human race. How did they get that way? Verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The problem wasn't Paul's technique, and the problem's not our technique. The problem is the condition of the human heart. Now, this category that results depend completely and entirely on God, instead of bringing discouragement, ought to bring us a lot of joy and encouragement because the pressure is off. I mean, it is off for you to produce results. Results aren't yours to produce at all. Your lack of ability, your Inability to change the heart of another human being is actually really good news. <laughs> Do you have the ability to speak into dry, dead bones and give them life? Do you have that ability? I'll give you a homework assignment if you think you do. Go to Cave Hill Cemetery on your way home today and try to speak to any of those dead bones and see if they raise to life for you. My guess is every single one of you will get pretty discouraged. <laughs> at your lack of results. The results of the new birth, the results of growth and godliness, we cannot produce them in another person. We can't do it. It is beyond our ability. It's beyond my ability, beyond your ability to change another person. But here's why this is encouraging. This is precisely what God does through his Holy Spirit. Our God is a God who does heart work. Our place is to so gospel seeds in and through all that we do and leave the results entirely to the Lord. Our place is open proclamation of the truth of the gospel without coercion, without manipulation, without pressure, without duplicity. Not get all bent out of shape when we encounter scorn and disrespect and people don't come around the way we wish. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And from there, we let the chips fall where they will. Well, if we do that, you say, how can we expect any good results from all of our gospel labors? Verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is that not the most profound verse? You know what he's saying? In creation... God said, let there be light. And what do you know? There was light. 
What he's saying is that God, through the Holy Spirit, he turns the lights on for unbelievers. Now this, this truth has the potential at least to make ministry really thrilling. When you have a firm grip on the fact that it is completely God and not you who produce results and spouses and children and friends and family members and anyone and everyone that you minister to, it'll put a spring back into your step and help you to avoid this downcast, dour, discouraged, burnout condition that you will undoubtedly encounter when you believe that you are central to another person coming around to bear the fruit that you wish they would. I have two other things quickly. Five. You'll understand, and you'll even take delight in this, you'll understand that you, you are personally insignificant. <laughs> You want to overcome burnout? Understand your own personal insignificance. Verse 7, we have this treasure. What treasure? Again, it's the treasure of the new covenant, the treasure of the gospel itself. We have this treasure, this wonderful reality. In what? What do we have it in? Jars of clay. We're just earthen vessels Clay pots. We have a few clay pots sitting around our house. You know what we use clay pots for in our house? We put dirt in it and put a plant in it. That's what we, we use clay pots for. In the ancient Near Eastern world, a clay pot was cheap. It was ugly. Mostly used for what Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 2.20, dishonorable use. He says it this way, in a great house, there are vessels of gold and silver. That's what you would eat and drink your food out of. But there's also vessels made of wood and earthenware, which he says were for dishonorable use. Dishonorable use is things like taking the trash out in it. So back to verse 7, we have this treasure in garbage buckets. Well, certainly that image carries with it a serious sense of personal insignificance, doesn't it? I am, I'm sure that other times in history have encountered such anti-gospel thinking, but I know our time in history definitely is marked by this radically overinflated view of self. It's everywhere, man. It's in our music. It's in our movies. It's in television shows. It's in self-help books found in nearly every home in America. This message that you're awesome. There's no one else like you. You are great in every way. Don't let anyone ever tell you any different. When you face trouble in life, just look deep within you. Find your true self that's good enough and smart enough. And gosh darn it, everybody in this world ought to like you because you're great. Well, the Bible says in and of ourselves, we're nothing special. We're just ordinary clay vessels, vessels fit for filling up and taking out the trash in. Now, Christ is our treasure, but we are clay pots. Understand your personal insignificance. Number six, and lastly, embrace the benefits of suffering. Embrace the benefits of suffering. James says, Familiar words, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, essentially because they have a perfecting work. Look again, starting in verse 8. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works at you, in, or death works in us, but life in you. That's the key. Death works in us, but life in you. The more we die and suffer and get crushed, it really is that very crushing that produces, it has the potential to produce life in others. And if that's the case, and it is the case, then don't you want to get crushed, pummeled, brought low, humiliated, scorned, rejected, ridiculed, hated, treated badly, if all of that is a means through which others receive gospel invigoration in life. Reading through Acts right now, I just came across this and wrote it into my notes uh, this morning, just thinking about it. In Acts chapter 5, you know, Paul or Peter, rather, has just preached Pentecost, and he and John just healed a man who was lame from birth, and governmental authorities are pressing in, throwing him in jail. They go and report things um, back to uh, the other apostles and other believers, and here's what it says. And when they had called in the apostles, again, they're still in jail, they beat them, and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They've been charging him to do that all along. Hey, d d stop talking about Jesus. And like, well, God's word actually says to speak of Jesus. And so we can do no other. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. So they beat him and they released them. Here was their response. Uh, then they, uh, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they let them go and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What if your children's salvation and your co-worker's salvation and your extended family member's salvation and their standing in grace, what if another person's flourishing in the gospel, in the faith, wasn't at all dependent on you, but the thing that the Lord in his sovereignty was choosing to use to show them the immeasurable greatness of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ was your humiliation and suffering and being brought low. And in the midst of your lowness, you kept believing that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, full of mercy, and you didn't lose heart. And what if Jesus could be clearly seen, not only in what you were saying, but in how you were saying it and how you were living it out, even when, especially when, in the midst of you living it out and speaking it, you were suffering on account of it? What if you're losing heart and giving over into frustrations and bitterness? What if you're treating others badly who are treating you badly? Is the very thing keeping you from experiencing some of those gospel outcomes that you're so discouraged that you're not experiencing to begin with? Beloved, at the start of 2023, I just want to encourage myself and all of us, let's not lose heart. 
I know, I know, this life is hard. It's hard. <laughs> There's nothing easy about it. I know that perseverance in the faith is full of all kinds of profound and real discouragements. I know that the mountains in front of many of you, even right now, presently, they seem impossible to climb. I know that many of you are facing trials of various kinds. I know that many of you are suffering as a direct result of you seeking to impart the gospel to others. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Do not lose heart by remembering and marveling the glory of the new covenant. What a great covenant we're under. By remembering that being a minister of the gospel is a mercy and a privilege. By remembering and committing ourselves to possessing a pure heart as we proclaim him with open, open statements of the truth. Don't give in to sin as you're sinned against. Remember that the results of our ministry, they, they depend completely and entirely on the Lord, not on you. Hold this view of yourself that you're personally insignificant, you're just a jar of clay, and embrace the benefits of suffering on account of the gospel. Paul's conclusion, verse 17, for this light, <laughs> doesn't feel light, <laughs> but this light, it is, this light, momentary affliction, it is bound to come if you're living for Jesus. You will be afflicted. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things seen but the things unseen for the things that are seen are transient. All of your suffering won't last forever. It's transient. But the things unseen are eternal. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, this gospel, it is unbelievably good, and yet it is, it's true. And Lord, we pray, those of us who have lost heart over the years, who even came this morning pretty discouraged, Lord, I pray that you might put a spring back into our step, that the gospel is lovely, wonderful good news. And I pray that you would help us as your people, those redeemed by your blood, to not lose heart as we strive with all of our energy and might to make you known to others. I pray that this year would be a year where we have opportunity to not only not lose heart, but to uh, endure in proclaiming you as powerfully as, as we are able. Lord, we pray that you would use us, strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.